This summer we're working our way through the book of Genesis and today's passage, which I'm going to uh, shorten, is um, happens after um, Sarah has given birth to Isaac and after Hagar, Sarah's maid, has given birth to Ishmael, uh, both in an attempt to fill God's promise of Abraham having an heir. So that is where we pick this story up at Genesis 21, 9, and I'll only read through verse 13. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, whom Hagar had born to Abraham, playing with her son Isaac. So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son. For the son of this slave woman shall not inherit along with my son Isaac. The matter was very distressing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, do not be distressed because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For it is through Isaac that offspring shall be named for you. As for the son of the slave woman, I will make a nation of him also, because he is your offspring. This is the word of the Lord. Dear God, for those who travel, for those who remain in place, speak to us your word today. In the name of Christ, amen. Purity of heart, said Kierkegaard, is to will one thing. In the long saga of Abraham and Sarah, we see Sarah willing only one thing. Producing an heir with Abraham as God has promised will happen, even though Sarah is 65 and Abraham is 75, when God makes that promise and when we meet them in the book of Genesis. By the time we pick up the saga of Abraham and Sarah in our passage for today, 10 years have passed and there has been no conception, no pregnancy, no birth, no heir. Purity of heart is to will one thing. For Sarah, that one thing is an heir. This willing one thing may explain why twice Sarah agrees to be presented as Abraham's sister to foreign leaders, men who may be interested in having her in their harem and who have the power to make that happen. Her aim in presenting herself as his sister which she technically was since they shared the same father, was to protect Abraham from being killed by those who wanted him out of the way so they could have access to her. Sarah knows that if Abraham dies childless, heirless, the promise of God will not be fulfilled. Purity of heart is to will one thing, even if that one thing involves humiliation, and powerlessness. Willing one thing may also explain why after 10 years and no child has appeared, 
Sarah advises Abraham to father a child through his servant, through her servant Isaac, her servant Hagar. In some traditions of Judaism, in a couple is, if a couple has not had a child after 10 years of trying, the man was allowed or even required to divorce his wife and marry someone who was presumably able to produce an heir. Willing one thing may also explain why after Hagar gives birth to Ishmael and several years later Sarah finally gives birth to Isaac. They all live in what might seem to the casual reader as one big, happy, but somewhat unconventional family. Two mothers, one father, each mother having a child by the father. Yet Sarah dispels whatever illusions of harmony this arrangement might hold when she sees Ishmael and Isaac playing together. And she immediately instructs Abraham to cast Ishmael and his mother Hagar out of the household. That is the portion of the story we just read. They can no longer live under one roof. These five. Abraham and Sarah, Hagar, Isaac, and Ishmael. The narrator doesn't attribute this breakup to psychic tension within the household. But rather to the single-minded purpose of God with Abraham and Sarah. For the son of this slave woman shall not inherit along with my son Isaac. Purity of heart is to will one thing, one thing, and one thing alone. When Sarah sees the play of these, excuse me, I've missed a page. We don't want to shorten things. It is worth noticing what Sarah actually sees, says, and does when she looks out her kitchen window and notices Isaac and Ishmael. Note first that Sarah sees the two boys playing. Her action, her reaction is based on what she sees with her own eyes, not what she hears, not what she imagines, not what an angel tells her or a servant reports to her. She sees the two boys playing, the sons of her husband playing together, and she acts. The word which in our version is translated playing has several nuances of meaning. It can mean mocking, as Sarah saw Ishmael mocking Isaac. It can mean joking or laughing, as in Sarah saw Ishmael joking with her son Isaac, laughing with him or laughing at him. Perhaps an innocent laugh, perhaps a devious laugh, calling to mind Proverbs twenty six eighteen. Like a maniac who shoots deadly firebrands and arrows, so is one who deceives a neighbor and says, I'm only joking. It can also imply some kind of sexual suggestiveness, even sexual dalliance. 
What Sarah sees in the play of the two boys, several years apart in age, half-brothers to one another, is hard to determine with exactitude. She may not even know fully what she sees herself, but her reaction and instinct is to separate the two boys, indeed to separate the two families. She cuts to the cold, hard reality of the role each boy and each side of the family is to play in the formation and fate of the people of Israel. The son of this slave woman, Sarah says, shall not inherit with my son Isaac. It is this reality, this one thing that Sarah knows to be true. And it leads her to tell Abraham Cast out this slave woman and her son. Purity of heart is to will one thing. Even when that one thing may be cold, harsh reality. In a fallen world that God has just begun to rectify. Now, two other characters in this part of the story react as well. One is Abraham and the other is God. Concerning Abraham, the narrator says, the matter was very distressing to Abraham on account of his son. When the narrator says his son, the narrator is talking about Ishmael. The matter was very distressing to Abraham on account of his son Ishmael. Abraham knows that God will fulfill his promise through his son Isaac. Abraham knows that the conception and birth of Ishmael was a backup plan that Sarah initiated and now appears to be no longer needed. Abraham likely knows that the situation of both Ishmael and Isaac and their two mothers living under the same roof with him is neither tenable nor sustainable. But despite all this hard and clear knowledge, Abraham is still distressed because of his son Ishmael. He has feelings for Ishmael. He cannot just just look at who is the heir. He cannot just look at who is the child of promise. He cannot just look at the long-awaited gift that Isaac is. Abraham is distressed at the prospect of putting Ishmael and Hagar out of his house precisely because no matter how cold and harsh the situation is, Ishmael is his son. I have never done Ancestry.com. I'm a little afraid of what I might find out. But from family lore, I learned as a child that my grandfather had been married as a teenager in rural Illinois before he had married my grandmother. They had a child from that marriage named Lillian. Then there was a divorce. And when I was helped cleaning out my grandfather's papers in the early 1970s, I found the handwritten divorce order by a judge in 1917. At some point after the divorce, he married my grandmother and they had my aunt and my father. 
They moved from the bat-infested apartment above the roadside diner that they ran, called, ironically, the bird's nest. (laughs) And they moved to Arkansas so that my grandfather could accept a job working on the railroad, riding every night from Arkansas over the border to Missouri and back as the third person that state law in Arkansas required to be in the cab of the train. And I learned that in his new job on the railroad, he actually had a week's vacation and he didn't have to open the bird's nest every morning and cook eggs and bacon and coffee for the farmers. Every year when his family took advantage of his week's vacation, they would drive all night to Illinois. They would visit my grandmother's large farm family. They would visit my grandfather's large farm family. And then they would return to Arkansas. But I was also told that one afternoon each year during that annual vacation, my grandfather would leave my grandmother, aunt and father, drive a few towns over, knock on the door where he thought his daughter Lillian lived, And when it would not answer, he would leave a birthday gift on the stoop, which I am guessing from my grandmother's general demeanor that he, not she, wrapped. I did not know my grandfather well. He rarely said much. But from this one piece of family lore, I deduced that he was distressed over his daughter Lillian. Like Abraham, distressed over a child he had fathered, whose role might be different than that of his other children, but for whom he still had feelings that in our day we would label love. Several years later, when I was in high school and happened to be in the hospital room in which my grandfather was a patient not too many months before he passed away, When the phone rang next to his bed, it was Lillian reaching out to him in her 50s. Abraham was not the only one who had concern for Hagar and Ishmael. Though God says to Abraham, whatever, says, whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For it is through Isaac that offspring shall be named for you. God doesn't stop there. God then says, as for the son of the slave woman, I will make a nation of him also. Because he is your offspring. Like Sarah, God appears to know that the one thing that will not change is that the promise of God for land, nationhood, and blessed to be a blessing for all the people God has created, a promise that will go through Sarah and Abraham and Isaac, will impact Ishmael. Sarah's purity of heart concerning that one thing is well-founded. But like Abraham, God sees the pathos of Hagar and Ishmael, the humanity of these soon-to-be outsiders, 
And God simply will not consign them to obscurity or death. I will make a nation of Ishmael also. Because he too is your offspring. So what do we make of all this? I've got to say that most of us don't necessarily turn to our faith or our church to become schooled in realism. We turn to the sermon and the hymns, the prayers and the classes, hoping to transcend the realities of this life, to rekindle our hopes and dreams, to leave with just a little bit of idealism in our hearts. We turn to the church to be inspired. Yet in Sarah, we find the other side of faith. The other side, indeed, of faithfulness. We find realism. Lucid realism. Clear-headed acknowledgement of the way things are. Midrashic scholar Aviva Zornberg writes of Sarah, the Sarah who could tell Abraham with such clinical decisiveness cast out that slave woman and her son demonstrates not only inflexible will but an apparently lucid vision of reality that is hidden from the more entangled emotions of Abraham. Zornberg goes on, God confirms Sarah's surgical judgment. He tells Abraham not merely to obey Sarah, but to accept her vision of things. What Sarah sees is that these two brothers cannot possibly coexist. Though they seem to be playing together, there is murder in the wind, a potential threatened reenactment of Cain and Abel in a similar field. Sarah understands that in a fallen and conflicted world, not all siblings are born to be cooperative. And God compliments Sarah for her knowledge. But Sarah's realism is not the only way of being held up and illuminated by this incident. For Abraham embodies the reality of conflicting principles. And only God can preside over the evolving conflict and contradictions that Abraham will soon experience. Abraham embodies more emotions and disparities than Sarah. And yet God uses and dignifies both Abraham and Sarah. Sometimes it takes courage to act from our ideals and aspirations. But sometimes it takes courage to act also from our sense of realism. Both are matters of conscience. Both are matters for prayer, discernment, thoughtfulness. Idealism can be a way of avoiding realities or complexities. And realism can be a sophisticated cover for cynicism or protection of our own interests. God recognizes the need for both and calls some of us to idealism, some of us to realism, and some of us to move back and forth between the two 
through all the circling years of our life. I try not to close sermons with something that everyone knows, but I can't help but do it today. God, grant me the courage to change the things I cannot accept, to accept the things I cannot change, and the wisdom to know the difference. Amen.